For decades, the so-called marshmallow test has been given by parents to their four- and five-year-old children. Now, it's been widely believed to be predictive of adult behavior, specifically the ability to delay gratification for the prospect of increased rewards. But Dan Benjamin of UCLA Anderson's School of Management says even the psychologist who originated the marshmallow test was fearful that it had been oversold. Hello again, I'm Warren Alney with How the World Works, a podcast of UCLA Anderson, and I'm joined by Dan Benjamin. He's a professor of behavioral economics. He also holds a joint appointment in the human genetics department at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine. And Professor, welcome. Great to have you. Thank you. Great to be here. So what is the marshmallow test? Where did it get started? The marshmallow test is where a four or five-year-old is exposed to a marshmallow, told that here's a marshmallow, and we, the experimenter, is going to leave the room. And if you can wait until we get back, you can have two marshmallows. So does the child wait for those two marshmallows, or does the child give in to the temptation and eat the marshmallow right away? The marshmallow test was created by the famous psychologist Walter Michel, around 1970 in a series of studies that were designed to understand the strategies that children use for self-control and which strategies worked better than other strategies. Over the years, those same children who were around age four in 1970 have been followed over time by Walter Michel and his collaborators and the marshmallow test is most famous today because that research team has found that the behavior of the kids in that original marshmallow test be predictive of all sorts of outcomes that the kids had later in life. So it took a long time then, obviously, to test out the marshmallow test. Yes, that's been one of the major challenges in this area of research. If you want to do a study to look at the effect of waiting for a marshmallow when you're four years old on your behavior at age 34, you have to wait 30 years. That's why there's actually very little evidence about how self-control in children relates to outcomes later in life. And it's one of the reasons why our paper is some of the only evidence. There are a few papers, but not a lot. Before we get to your paper, has any population other than the first one been tested? It was at a school called Bing, is that correct? That's right. So the original study was done at the Bing Nursery School, which is connected with Stanford University, where Walter Michel was at the time. The study has been repeated since then a few times by several different groups of researchers, but the most famous work is based on that original sample of four or five-year-olds that Walter Michel studied back in 1970. Well, now you worked with Walter Michel. He was part of a project that uh, you just alluded to. But before we get there, tell us, why was it that even he had his doubts about the way that it was being used? Well, there was a popular impression that your destiny is in the marshmallow, that whether you could wait for that second marshmallow was a crystal ball that told you whether somebody was going to be able to resist eating dessert and be able to not become overweight or whether someone was going to be able to stick to their exercise regimen or stick with it through difficult school. So there was a sense that the marshmallow test was this crystal ball. And Walter Michel understood that 
that was a vast exaggeration. If the marshmallow test had some predictive ability for behavior later in life, it was likely to be fairly small. I think the other thing that made him uncomfortable is that people treated the marshmallow test as if it was measuring a fixed, innate trait of self-control that a person was stuck with, when in fact he believed that self-control was a skill that could be taught and that there were strategies that you could adopt that would help with better self-control. And in fact, that was originally why he did the experiments back in 1970. He was originally interested in order to study the strategies that helped kids be more successful at self-control. When you say that destiny is in the marshmallow, if that's not true, I have to be glad for it. I don't want my destiny to be in a marshmallow. <laughs> I'm sure nobody else does either. But tell us more about how over the years the way that the test has been understood and appreciated has changed. And then uh, tell us about your own research. In the 1980s, Walter Michel and former students of his, who also collaborated with me on the paper that we're going to be talking about, they began a research program of investigating how behavior in the marshmallow test when they were age four related to their current outcomes, which in the 1980s, they were teenagers, and then they were followed through the years in their 20s and 30s. And then when we studied them, they were in their 40s. That work looked at outcomes like SAT scores, BMI, and there were a series of, of findings. The kids who were able to wait longer seemed to have outcomes that relate more to self-control, so higher SAT scores, lower body weight index. You know, in, in all of that research, the number of kids in the study, the sample size, was fairly small, and so it was hard to draw strong conclusions about how strong those relationships were. But the way it was reported in, in the press and in the popular imagination is that these were very powerful effects and that your destiny is in the marshmallow. Well, people were talking about it, as you suggested, about the possibility of being able to avoid being abuse. And then it got into a lot of details about smoking and alcohol use and social status. Those were all things that you addressed in a very, very sophisticated, very detailed way. So we started our project, it was around 2008. I recently finished my PhD, and it was actually two teams of researchers coming together. On the one hand, there was the team of Walter Michel and his colleagues, Yuichi Shoda, Phil Peake, Nicole Wilson, who had written papers on the, the Bing study and followed the Bing kids over time. And then there was my research team of myself, my PhD advisor, David Lapson, Alex Wellsjo. We were interested in understanding whether the marshmallow test would be predictive of economic outcomes, which was something that hadn't been addressed in the prior work. Wanting to know how well would results about drug addiction and body mass index extend to economic outcomes like savings and credit card problems that people might have. So we then designed a survey that we sent to as many of the original Bing study participants. We were able to reach about 100 of them, 113 in total. It took us a long time. It, it, I mean, it was, it was over 10 years from when we started the project to when, when we finally published it because it took us years to develop the questionnaire that we asked and then years to analyze the data. We focused on a set of 11 outcomes that we thought were 
the most interesting and the, the ones where we had the largest number of individuals who answered the survey question that we could include, like net worth, income, overall savings, misuse of credit cards, the amount of high interest debt that a person held, how many years of education they had. And we studied how each of these related to waiting time in the marshmallow test, how long the kids were able to wait, as well as a broader measure of self-control or self-regulation that was the result of many survey questions that the kids themselves and their parents had answered over the years, 86 questions in all. That was a, a much broader measure of self-regulation. And so the bottom line is we found that the broad measure of self-regulation was predictive of these outcomes that we studied that confirms what we all believed, which is that self-regulation, self-control does matter for outcomes in middle age. But the marshmallow waiting time itself had a very, very weak predictive power for these outcomes. In fact, we can't statistically distinguish it from no predictive power at all. For comparison, the self-regulation index made up of 86 questions had a correlation on average of 0.19 with the outcomes that we studied. So that's a moderate correlation, whereas the waiting time in the marshmallow test had a correlation of 0.02, which is minuscule. And again, not distinguishable from zero statistically. Well, that goes back then to your issue about uh, whether your situation is fixed at an early age or whether, in fact, you learn more about self-regulation and control as you grow older. Yeah, so that's a, that's a, a great question. One of the things we looked at was whether the answers to the self-regulation questions became more predictive of the outcomes when, when you're 45 years old. If you answered questions about your self-control when you were 17 or 27 or 37, so in other words, can we better predict your outcomes at age 45 from how you rated your own self-control when you were 37? Can we predict better than the way you answered questionnaires about your self-control when you were 17? Surprisingly, the answer is no. From age 17 onward, we see stable levels of prediction for outcomes at age 45. We're getting no difference in the predictive power of these questionnaires. We don't know before that because age 17 is the earliest we have this questionnaire data. So before that, all we have is the marshmallow test from age four, which was not predictive. So just to review it for a minute, you had 113 people left over from the very early studies when they were uh, four or five years old. And you're asking them each 86 questions. That's a lot of questions. Were they happy to hear from you or, or were they sick and tired of asking all those questions? My understanding is that the Bing study participants were enthusiastic about being part of this famous study. And many of them were happy to participate in the in the later research and, and contribute to science. How do you think it was that it became so famous? Well, it became famous because of the apparent predictive power of the marshmallow test for outcomes like SAT scores and body mass index, which just seemed like miraculous. And it's very difficult to measure differences across people in their personality or their skills. And so this seemed like a kind of rare exception where just a very simple experiment could be incredibly revealing about 
uh, how a person's life was going to turn out. Well, and it seems to me it's what every parent wants to know. Is there something that I can do at an early age to help my child so that he or she becomes more successful as they get older? And plus, I would think from a researcher's standpoint, you start out with those cute little kids. Yeah, it's hard to beat the videos of the kids, just the temptation. Well, as there's been uh, a popular reporting about it, as you indicated, there's always a picture of the cute little kid at the table with, with the, uh, the marshmallow sitting there and the kid looking at it. It's irresistible. Yeah, it's also a really easy experiment. Anyone can do it at home with their own kids. You know, it's, it's just got this incredible appeal scientifically. It's beautiful. It's compelling. It, it's believable that it would be this powerful test. And it's also something that anyone can do at home. But that's anything but true of the research that you did. When I look at it, it is full of graphs and charts and mathematics that I don't begin to understand. Uh, tell us a bit about why it was necessary for you to do the kind of exhaustive study that you did. We undertook the study enthusiastically because we thought it was such a unique opportunity. This was such a unique sample of kids that had done this test when they were four, and we were able to look at where they were at age 45, and no one could do that because there hadn't been studies running long enough that you could follow up with kids 40 years later. So it was really a unique chance to ask these research questions to see how behavior on the marshmallow test would relate to lots of outcomes. So we wanted to take advantage of that opportunity and study as many different kinds of outcomes as we could. But we faced three serious challenges that led us to undertake some pretty sophisticated statistical approaches to try to deal with the problems. One is just that the sample size only had 113 of these kids, and that's small for research where you want to look for relating a measure of differences across people, like the waiting time on the marshmallow test, with outcomes that vary a lot between people. Another challenge was we wanted to look at lots of outcomes. We were interested in not only savings rates and incomes, but also how much education the people had ended up getting and how much they were defaulting on their credit card debt. And it's complicated to look at a lot of outcomes at once because there's a higher chance that you just find results by chance when you're studying many outcomes at the same time. We want to study this waiting time in the marshmallow test, but the kids took the marshmallow test under different conditions. Remember that when Walter Michel originally did the marshmallow test, he was interested in studying the strategies that the kids used that would make them more successful or less successful at resisting the marshmallow. And part of what he did was he encouraged the kids to have different strategies. So some of the kids, he just left them up to their own devices to try to resist the marshmallow. But other kids, he said, now you try to imagine that the marshmallow is a cloud and other kids, he covered up the marshmallow so they couldn't see it while they were waiting. Those things mattered. Covering up the marshmallow helped the kids wait longer, and the kids who were told to imagine it was a cloud were able to wait longer. And that was very interesting. That was an important part of the research, but it makes studying the marshmallow test waiting time much more complicated because we have to take into account that the kids took these tests under different conditions. So one of the reasons then for all of what I just referred to, the charts, the graphs, the mathematics, was in order to uh, try to account for those differences. You had to figure out formulas for doing it. That's right. We needed to take into account that we had a small number of individuals, a number of outcomes we wanted to study, and the kids were taking the marshmallow test under different conditions. 
Well, again, when you worked with Walter Michel, who passed away before your results were finally published, was he concerned about the way in which his study had been exaggerated, if you were? Was he worried that people were capitalizing on it and that parents were being led down a primrose path that really didn't have the ending they thought it did? He was very concerned about that. He went out of his way when he spoke about the marshmallow test to highlight that it is not destiny, that the predictive power is actually quite limited. At the same time, he did think it was important that people pay attention to the issue of self-control and self-regulation. I think he was at some level very happy that the marshmallow test got the attention that it did because it got people to focus on that set of issues of self-control and self-regulation that he thought were so important and that he thought we should be teaching our kids more systematically. Well, do you worry that now that you've demonstrated uh, pretty clearly that our destiny is not in the marshmallow, do you worry that people will say, oh, well, then I don't have to worry about self-control and self-regulation. It's not something that I need to teach my kids after all. I do think that would be a misunderstanding of what we find. Remember, we do have another measure of self-regulation besides the marshmallow test, a measure that's based on questionnaires that the individuals themselves and their parents filled out over many years. And that's a, a high quality measure of self-control and self-regulation that is predictive of outcomes at age 45. So self-regulation, self-control, they matter. But it's just that the marshmallow test is not a magical test that single-handedly can predict those outcomes. It's a single behavioral measure that is taken at a moment in time when all sorts of other things could be going on. A kid could be having a bad day. It may be that he's particularly hungry when the test is done. All sorts of situational factors could tip behavior in that particular moment when the test is done. And it's just one test, just one item. And psychologists know you almost always need many, many pieces of information combined together, many items, many questions on a questionnaire before you can get reliable, predictive validity for any kind of test. And so it would really defy what we know from decades of psychology research if a single test could be strongly predictive of later outcomes. And so in a sense, all we did was to verify the conventional wisdom of psychologists. In fact, Walter Michel himself, among psychologists, he first became famous for pointing out the limitations of personality measures for predicting behavior. And so I think our finding that this single measure of self-control is one of the most important themes of, of his research career. So the marshmallow test, so popular for so long a time, do you think that parents are still giving it to their kids with the idea that they're going to be able to help them out in a way that they probably aren't helping them out? And if so, what would you say to those people? I think to the extent that parents are giving the marshmallow test to their kids and from that experience, it's getting them to think about self-control as an important skill to cultivate in their children, that's a good thing. To the extent that parents are giving the marshmallow test and then thinking that somehow that outcome is determinative of their child's life and that maybe that there is no point in trying to teach self-control because their destiny is in the marshmallow, that would be a, a very sad misunderstanding and misinterpretation and counterproductive. 
So I hope that our paper and our research can get disseminated through outlets like this, news outlets, so that the broader public can understand that the marshmallow test really isn't destiny. The real message is we need to work hard to teach self-control skills, and there's no simple way to measure how self-controlled a person's going to be in their life. Let me ask you this. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis now on gender in uh, all kinds of aspects of life. And I know that when the original tests were done at Bing, the people who administrated it were male. Do you think that made a difference? And is there any way that you could account for that if you do think it makes a difference? Well, that's an interesting question. We're using the data from the original experiment. So if the data was collected by men, then that's the data that we have. But some of the later work that's been done more recently with the marshmallow test, I believe that work has used men and women as the experimenter. Using data from, from that other work, one could study that question, but it's not anything we can say anything about. I understand the Bing study, the original one, was about 50-50 boys and girls. Subsequently, it was different. How was it different? In our sample, 37% were male. So that means that it was more women than men who were willing to respond to our follow-up questionnaire. And interestingly, in our sample, when we look at their waiting time at age four, the girls holding constant age, girls waited 50% longer than boys. So does that suggest then that women have more patience than men? It certainly seems that they have more patience on the marshmallow task, at least in our sample. Well, it's wonderful to talk with you and very helpful. And I can hear young people in the background. I don't know if you're going to give them the marshmallow test or not, but uh, it's wonderful to know that they are there with you. Again, uh, Dan Benjamin is a professor of behavioral economics at UCLA Anderson. He also holds an appointment at the Human Genetics Department at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine. Professor, it's been great to talk with you, and uh, thanks a lot. Thank you, Warren. It's been a lot of fun. It has been for me, too. This has been How the World Works from UCLA Anderson. Join us again. Thank you.